Hi, it's Fraser here. Before we get into this week's Spiked podcast, I'd like to remind you all about Spiked Supporters. Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked Supporter and get access to a number of exciting perks. Spiked Supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop, and bookmark articles as you browse. This is all our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet so many of you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us. We're so grateful for that. If you don't give to Spiked yet, then now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spiked supporters account. That's spikes-online.com forward slash supporters. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week we have Spike's editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the Liverpool bombing, the Yorkshire County cricket racism scandal, the trial by media of Kyle Rittenhouse and the alleged bum slapping by Stanley Johnson. So on Sunday, Liverpool was rocked by a terror attack. Imad El Swelmin, the suspect, uh, set off a bomb outside the Liverpool Women's Hospital. Thankfully, only he was killed. And it was on Remembrance Sunday. And so there's some suggestion that he might have also been going to a remembrance service. I mean, some details have come out about the man responsible uh, Tom, do you want to tell us a bit about that, what we've learned this week? Yeah, so as you say, the details are starting to emerge. The picture seems to be um, that he was from Iraq originally. Um, he came to the UK via other countries, claimed asylum around 2014, claimed to be Syrian. Uh, that was rejected. He appealed. It was rejected again in 2015 and seems to have been in Liverpool ever since. Um, mm. He went um, through a kind of conversion course to Christianity, um, had stayed with some Christians there um, who have vouched that he was quite devout, although naturally questions are being asked as to how devout he actually was. Um, had clearly had um, some mental health issues. There was a story about him being sectioned at one point mm. for waving a knife around in public on an overpass. And then at some point had constructed this bomb, uh, was picked up by a cab driver on Sunday Originally, it seems like reports are pointing to this, though it's not yet confirmed that the original target might have been the cathedral where Remembrance Sunday events were taking place. Either the plan changed or they couldn't get close, or maybe this was the target. We're not 100% sure. They end up at Liverpool Women's Hospital where the bomb goes off. As you say, remarkably, the only person who dies from this is the bomber himself. Even the cab driver manages to get away with minor injuries, which is a real miracle. And so it's it's worth bearing in mind, I think, that we could have been talking about something so different this week. I mean, even with where it ended up, you know, this is a hospital brimful of mothers and newborn babies, for instance, the kind of appalling scenes that could have unfurled. We could have been talking about another mass casualty event and a particularly grim mass casualty event at that. So it's incredibly fortunate that's not what the case is. But even that being said, I think it's hard not to be struck, not so much by the response, but the lack of response. Yeah, It's incredibly quiet. I know this is a slightly confusing case and still a lot isn't necessarily known about it, but particularly with the proximity of this attempted attack and 
the murder of David Amos by a suspected Islamist extremist not too long ago. That kind of general foreboding sense that we could be heading into something similar to 2017, where you just have one attack after another, the terror threat level being raised and all the rest of it. For the response to almost be, you know, unexplicitly, but still kind of there that, that was close. Yeah. It's strange, you know, but that's, that's unfortunately where we're at. It's almost because partly because this doesn't necessarily fit neatly into a sort of media narrative. The fact that we're here again, even with a lucky escape just seems to almost not necessarily being newsworthy. It's back to talking about Tory sleeves and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's worth pointing out that not a single MP raised the issue of this terror attack Mm. at prime minister's questions. You know, they were mainly talking about themselves essentially this week. Ella. Yeah, the fact that there has been actually a discussion about everything around the attack itself, but not the attack itself, and the fact that no one has made really any clear and solid links between what happened with David Amos and this is relatively shocking because it seems so obvious. I mean, in the few days after the attack, I remember hearing an interview on the radio with someone from the Liverpool Echo in which someone from the Today programme was saying, well, you know, what after this, we have to look at the fact that they're might well be a rise in hate crime. And how do you feel about that? And thankfully, the person from the Liverpool Echo came back really strongly and said, that's just not an issue for us. And, you know, Liverpool has a long history of um, accepting and welcoming immigrants from, you know, back in during the Irish famine until today. We don't do that. And actually, he was saying, well, you're not going to catch me with that trap. We're not We're not yeah. talking about hate crime here. We're talking about an attack, yeah. not some kind of speculative thing that you think might happen after the attack. Um, but in the same way, I think there has been an evasion of the specifics of what we're dealing with, which is, you know, we don't know all the details yet, but it looks like it could be some kind of terror attack, something to do with radicalization. And then I was pretty disgusted with Pretty Patel coming out and saying that this was just down to a defective asylum system, wanting to get score a few political points about, you know, on her particular bugbear in relation to immigration. Um you know, despite the fact that the Met police officer says that most of the problem with radicalization and home and terrorism is homegrown, eighty percent is. And so we seem to be having all these discussions rather than looking at what what the specifics are in relation to the threat of Islamist terrorism. I mean, there was this really terrifying comment from an MI five chief that said we can't really do much because the whole nature of Islamist terrorism is it tells people to pick up a rock and kill your enemy. And so you have all these mad people going, or not mad people going around who can just brandish a knife or cook up a bomb from somewhere. But surely we need to talk about that openly rather than deflecting on something in relation to asylum seekers or in relation to hate crime, but actually look the problem in the face and say, how do we solve this? We should talk a bit about um, asylum. I mean, something is broken there clearly as well that's been revealed by this. And there is a kind of, um, there have been other kind of asylum seekers implicated in similar terror attacks. But, you know, that's not to say that anything bad about asylum seekers in general, of course. But there is an unwillingness to talk about that. There's no two ways about it. Um, Because in recent years, there has been more instances of this. So the Parsons Green bomber was an asylum seeker. He was in foster care, I believe, at the time Mm. um, when he let off that bomb. Luckily, it was kind of crudely constructed. It just injured a lot of people, didn't take any lives. Um, Kyrie Sadala, who was the um, Reading knife attacker, he was actually, so I think he was in prison, was then... Um, because he committed various different violent petty crimes. Um, When he was out of prison, he was informed that he was going to be deported. And then two weeks later, he commits this attack. And I think that's another thing which there is, that's potentially one of the things that contributes to the wariness about talking about these things. Not because anyone wants to go on some crusade against all asylum seekers and all the rest of it, but just because even mentioning that unsettles people. You know, the only real narrative, if you like, around um, questions of asylum in this government is to suggest that, you know, um, 
Priti Patel going to war with lefty lawyers is putting their lives at risk. That's only really the only real thing people want to talk about in relation to that, despite the fact there are clear failings, which won't necessarily necessarily add up to a kind of systemic threat, but in individual cases is clearly something that um, questions need to be answered. And Brendan raised this in his piece this week as well, just how in some of these instances, we don't know a lot about this particular individual in terms of Liverpool that much, apart from the fact he was trying very hard to stay in the country. Um, but for instance, whether it was the Parsons Green bomber who had told his school teacher that he had a duty to hate Britain, or you had the Manchester Arena bomber who was born and raised in Manchester, but his parents were yeah. Libyan refugees, um, who had really internalised this kind of homegrown narrative, which mm. was really that this is a disgusting, horrendous, Islamophobic place. And this was one of the things that he used to dress up what was no doubt his own particular kind of nihilism and all the rest of it. So it's, in a way, I think that it's one of those things which people are, you know, it gives, it gives Pretty Patel an easy thing to talk about, no yeah. doubt. But also I think it's one of the things that contributes to the anxiety around some of these things, which is that a small number um, admittedly, um, of these individuals are from, in some cases, an asylum seeker background, or in some cases have outstayed even after they'd been told that they can't stay in the country anymore. And people are naturally going to want to raise questions about that. And yet it feels increasingly difficult to do so um, in the current climate because people naturally assume that if you're doing that, it's because you're going after asylum seekers. Yeah, <laughs> or you're doing yeah. this or you're doing that. So I think it's one of the things that probably, at the very least, contributes to this, the kind of quiet that we're in at the moment, I guess. Spiked is producing more brilliant content than ever. The best way to keep up with everything we do is by signing up for our daily newsletter. It's called Today on Spiked. Every weekday, you'll get a roundup of all of Spiked's content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team, usually myself. So to never miss a thing on Spiked, go to spiked-online.com forward slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked. So Azim Rafiq, the cricketer, has been giving evidence to MPs about some of the racist uh, abuse he'd been dealing with um, in, during his time at Yorkshire County Cricket Club. I mean, some of the allegations are incredibly serious. Um, you know, the kind of open racism that we just don't hear about much these days that thankfully is, you know, a lot of the time um, long past us. And it seems as if, as well, Yorkshire County Cricket Club were essentially not punishing anyone for this racism. He has made the allegation of institutional racism. Tom, you've written about this this week. What, what have you made of it? Well, as you say, it's, it's really quite shocking. And there's, it's difficult But when you're talking about things that happened years ago in some cases, almost 10 years ago in some mm. cases, some of the allegations. But, you know, he, re he left as recently as 2018. And um, even Yorkshire County Cricket Club's own very criticised um, independent investigation to this stands up a lot of his core claims, yeah. namely that kind of racist jibes were pretty common, that he and other South Asian players were called in, as he was talking about to MPs this week, packies, elephant washers, all these mm. kinds of things. And it just being tolerated. Um, now, as I say, it's hard to relitigate these things well after the fact. Um, there's obviously some people who are staunchly protesting that they have said what they're alleged to have said. Um, and all of that, it's important that we don't just take as read what um, people have said. But, you know, even people implicated this, like Gary Balance, the batsman there, has admitted to using the P words. Yeah. He said that, oh, he gave as good as he got and it was all banter, etc. But it, that's quite hard to swallow when you're talking about a word as, as toxic as all that. Um, the thing that struck me about it really was that 
this is kind of a reminder of how silly a lot of our discussion about racism often is. Mm. I mean, we talk about racism all the time, and yet often it's hardly at all. What we're talking about is whether that woman from who used to be in Little Mix is wearing too much fake tan, yeah. or if Dave Chappelle has white privilege somehow. You know, it's that kind of nonsense because of the sort of nature of our current discussion. And when you're confronted with something like this, I think the reason we find it so shocking is because it is mercifully so much rarer mm. in society today. You know, the word packy makes the, fr- the, f- you know, the sort of flesh crawl, if you like, when you hear it repeated. It was interesting, actually, when the broadcasters were playing back some of his testimony, they made a point of bleeping it, yeah. which tells you just how much things have changed, I guess, how shocking that is. So it puts things into perspective in a little sense. There's obviously a lot of questions that need to be asked of Yorkshire County Cricket Club and various individuals still, but that was one of the things that really struck me about it. Yeah, and uh, Tracy Brabin, the West Yorkshire mayor, um, she used an interesting phrase. She said, um, in responding to this case, she said that she thinks the whole country is uh, systemically racist. I mean, Ella, what do you make of that kind of response? Because isn't it actually evading the problem of racism in many ways? But it was also really important in this case to be specific because Yorkshire County Cricket Club has a specific history in relation to racism that Tim Black picked up in an article he wrote um, the other week, which is that until from 1968 until 1992, the cricket club had a policy of only accepting players if you were born um, and raised in Yorkshire. There is a real history within that, you know, within that club in which there has been hostility towards South Asians. And it goes against the, uh, I think, the more nationwide trend in which, you know, the people have been talking on the radio and television about the sort of almost cliche point now that particularly in things like cricket mm. is where you, many South Asians say that they um, were able to defeat racism and that they were able to integrate and prove themselves and get past the kind of barriers that were faced by lots of them. This obviously isn't the case in this. So talking about a kind of nationwide systemic racism, I think uh, it it dissipates and and sort of lessens the seriousness of what was actually being dealt with in this case. I mean, it's that watching his um, testimonial was incredibly emotional, not just because of the um, use of the words packing and saying like, oh, he's, you know, people saying he's not shaky, doesn't have any oil and that kind of thing. But the more complicated nature of racism and, uh, and the institutional racism that was happening within that club, because it was from the bottom to the top, in that Moxon, who is now on sick leave after Rafiq had lost his son, the stillborn son, brought him in for a dressing down. I mean, it just the whole thing stinks of the fact that this that everything was set up against this guy. And the most shocking fact is that the re- independent report was withheld from him for so long and still hasn't been made publicly available. So uh, as someone look, watching on from this from the outside, it makes you uh, question all of the claims and that are made by the cricket club, particularly the fact that they are refusing to discipline anyone. Which is that there's the issue of racism, but there's also the issue of accountability. And I think, as Tom says, the po- the problem we have today with not being able to call racism racism when it really is and define it in specific terms and look at it with a with a kind of focused lens means that in the end you get a, a people being allowed to say it's banter, it's this or that, and you let the real racists off the hook. And Tom, um, you kind of hinted at this, but, it, you know, again, isn't it our shock at this a sign of how far we've come, how much mm. things really have changed over the past, you know, 20, 30, 40 years? Yeah, it's important. This sounds like a deflection, but it's really not, um, because it really underlines quite an important point. And also an important point, I think, about how 
what our kind of anti-racist politics is like mm. these days. Because when you have an instance like this, or even something which is one of those slightly more confected, fr- frankly, kind of issues that we talk about a lot on this podcast, there's a tendency to say, see, things really haven't changed at all. Yeah, You know, it's like you scratch beneath the surface and it's still like the 1970s. That's basically what people like to say. And I think that's something which really needs to be taken up. Um, the progress on racism in this country and many others in recent decades has been nothing short of stunning. There's no two ways about that. Even in the, people talk about the past 30, 40 years, even even the past 10 years, yeah. you know, there was an Ipsos Mori poll last year, which said that between, it was like 2009 and 2020, the proportion of people who would be completely relaxed about um, their son or daughter marrying someone from a different ethnic group went from 75% to like 89%. You know, there's still some way to go, of course. But you need to accept that progress has happened if you intend to make any more. Yeah. And I think also this idea, as Ella was talking about, that um, you just extrapolate everywhere. You do the Tracy Brabin thing. Yeah. You say that this just reflects racism across society. It lets people off the hook because how do you root out racism and racist if everything is racist and everyone yeah. is a racist? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's, it makes it entirely impossible. And also turns the discussion, it kind of makes a discussion entirely about often kind of far more kind of trivial, borderline, more complicated things rather than when it's actually staring you in the face. So it's been a reminder in that sense. And I think it's just important to say that even in the face of real bigotry, as we see here, it's always important to remember how far we've come. It's the reason that this stuff shocks us so much. The Spiked Shop is open for business. You can get your favourite Spiked slogan on a T-shirt, hoodie, mug or more. So why not treat yourself or treat a friend who has good taste to some epic spiked merchandise? Get ban nothing, question everything on a sweatshirt. Get cancel cancel culture on a laptop sleeve. Or get love Europe, hate the EU on a tote bag. Support Spiked and look great at the same time by visiting the Spiked shop. You can go to spiked-online.com and click the red shop button in the top right corner or you can get there directly by going to spikes-online.com forward slash shop. As we're recording this, the jury are deliberating on the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, Rittenhouse, is the, he was 17 at the time when he fatally shot two men and injured another during last summer's riots. Um, he was in uh, Kenosha. The media narrative, I think it's fair to say, um, has almost has so badly misrepresented the facts in a sense. Now, we don't want to relitigate the case that's that's going on, but it's fair to say they have truly misrepresented this this case do you not think tom no definitely i mean if particularly i think from a you could say easily from a british perspective because we only get the kind of narrative rather than the facts i think a lot of the time but it seems to be the same for america as well as far as as soon as this happened this was basically chalked up and i think iona presley the um, democratic congresswoman member of the squad summed up quite neatly this was being presented as a white supremacist domestic terrorist had crossed state lines Mm. in order to basically kill people who were out protesting for black lives. That was basically how it was presented. Um, as many people have written about over the past 
couple of days. There's a lot of people who don't even realise that the three people he shot were white. Yeah. Um, it's just not necessarily talked about. The fact that, as far as anyone can tell, he has no white supremacist leanings whatsoever. What he seems to be was an incredibly naive kid who stepped into a situation with an assault rifle. You know, he showed up, he had um, close family members in Kenosha, which is something else that was never actually really talked about at the time. Um, he and a couple of other people he was involved with were kind of um, involved in kind of cleaning up after the rioting that was going on in the wake of the police shooting of Jacob Blake um, and then also guarding certain businesses with their weapons and all the rest of it. It's an incredibly reckless, stupid thing to do. You know, you're introducing more weaponry into that situation. Bad mm. things are going to happen. But again, everyone just assumed he was chasing people down. He was being chased down. And it kind of came to a head in the past week where on the stand, the third person that he shot but who he didn't kill um, admitted under questioning that at the point at which Rittenhouse opened fire, he was pointing his own gun at Rittenhouse's head. Yeah. Now, these things just completely complicate the picture which has been presented before us. And I think also completely skates over the fact that whilst no one wants to turn Carl Rittenhouse into some sort of martyr or hero, at the same time, it's quite clear that this was a horrendous situation which was born out of the chaos of that situation that had been aided and abetted, frankly, by the media mm. and by certain sections of even the democratic political establishment in the wake of George Floyd and the unrest that had all sort of settled out then. And just one in a long litany of failures from the corporate media and an insistence on basically following the narrative rather than the facts. I think it's just another one of those stories which, regardless of what happens with the trial, by the time people watch this, they might finally know whether he's been found guilty or not. Um, that's already clear. I mean, there is a sense that um, a lot of the time, in, in, certainly in the US media, if you're on the wrong side of the culture war, you're basically a far right white supremacist and you know they've done this to even to children i mean the classic example is the covington catholic children and mm. nick sandman who was essentially damned as a white supremacist for having a smile that people didn't like and you know that was that was extrapolated to mean that he was an evil racist mm. i mean ella what do you make of that kind of um just the narrative at all costs kind of take in the media well it's obviously misleading and kind of you know in in particularly within the US media which is obsessed with claiming fake news um in relation to Dump, Donald Trump and sort of pretending that it's got very high standards it's it's yeah. in itself fake news but it's also incredibly lazy because the whole thing as Thomas has been explaining with Rittenhouse is that the picture is actually quite complicated yeah. you know there's a very seri very serious questions to ask is like why none of the adults who were with him uh, set, you know, at the time, at any point during that day, said, "Hang on a minute, you shouldn't have that assault rifle." Why, you know, why a seventeen-year-old was able to have access to that kind of weaponry? You know, the whole the the way in which the uh, events seem to have played out from what we know from what's been going on in the court, it's a kind of terrifying situation for everyone involved. That people are chasing each other, people are hitting each other with skateboards, people are firing at each other, and you know, the the broader question that. America could ask itself is how, or indeed at least the media could ask is, how has this situation reached a fever pitch in which you have teenagers on both sides of the mm. debate actually um, firing at each other and running at each other in the streets? How does this have any relation to Jacob Blake? How does this, how does this situation have any relationship to fighting for justice in relation to police brutality, which is, you know, the whole discussion of what George Floyd's murder kicked off. I mean, it's just so removed from the whole nature of a discussion about white supremacy that it's absolutely bizarre to, put, to mm. pin the label of white supremacy onto him. But I mean, it, Tom raises a really important point about, particularly about 
UK spins on this. Yeah. Because I remember it's it's so important to check yourself as well. Because I remember at the time th- when I heard it thinking, he crossed state lines. I mean, God, he's, a, he's like a, some kind of vigilante. You hear it <laughs> yeah, and you yeah, think, yeah. oh, he's gone on a road trip to go and fire at people. This is terrible. Mm. And then you realize that actually the distance in America is not so great and you know it, it's not like minute drive uh, from yeah, it's home, not like us know. going up to Edinburgh to join a riot it's that you know it's all and so the importance of being able to take a pause when things like this happen we've talked about this in relation to terrorist attacks we've take, talked about this in relation to scandals that are broken in our own country just to be able of a press to be able to say hang on a minute what are the facts how can we understand this instead of jumping right into Things that could, and importantly, when there's a court case, perverse the, pervert the course of justice. It's like, why can't we learn that lesson? Why can't we take a minute to just, rather than jumping to our own political biases, to say what has actually happened here? And the truth of what's happened here is that people have lost their lives because of the tragedy of some idiotic teenager and the adults who should have stepped in to stop him doing that. I mean, that what could be more tragic than that? But also, just finally, like the adults in the room, so-called, if we want to talk more broadly, like nationally, you know, that chaos which unfolded not just in Kenosha, but across the US across last year. You know, this was in the context of you had a media which was just openly calling these riots protests. Yeah. Which you had people on CNN standing in front of a fucking wall of flames while saying that, whilst the uh, mess, the caption at the bottom said mostly peaceful protest <laughs> in which you had the New York Times publishing essays talking about how looting is in the great spirit of, <laughs> of, of, of protest and activism and all the rest of it in which you had um, democratic politicians who found it increasingly difficult um, to even keep order mm. and all the rest of it and making excuses for all of the things that were going on and also a media which was maintaining a narrative which aside from individual cases I mean even Jacob Blake was not as clear cut as say George Floyd was so all these things are a bit difficult that this was all just the playing out of a kind of low-level genocidal campaign on the part of cops against black people. Yeah. Promoting all of this stuff all the time, making excuses for rioting, helping to create and aid and abet this chaos. Mm. And then when a stupid 17-year-old walks into this and a few people lose their lives in the melee, it's suddenly all just about him and this nefarious evil individual. It's just so incredibly ridiculous. And also you could easily see bit of history repeating itself insofar as if this verdict doesn't go the way that say the identitarians hope think that it should we're already starting to see unrest Mm. because again the narrative has been set that he is this white supremacist domestic terrorist who uh, who people if if he is found to have just acted in self-defense by the jury they're just going to say aha white supremacist america has let them off the hook again so again the you know just the sheer recklessness that has created all of that chaos i think it's always important to go back to that as well the Tory MP, Caroline Noakes, has accused uh, Stanley Johnson, Boris Johnson's father, of slapping her on the bum at a Tory party conference in 2003. Um, this has been all over the news this week. Uh, a writer from the New Statesman has also made her own allegation against um, Johnson Sr. I mean, what have we made to this and, and, and the response to this? It's been weird because I think because there's so much going on in the news right now, it hasn't quite had the cut through that we, that previous allegations might have done. And indeed, I think it's fair to say that Noakes was hoping it might do because the, this wasn't just 
uh, you know, she didn't just write this in an article interview. It was in a Sky News panel discussion. Uh, that was uh, originally the question was asked about the murder of Sarah Everard and the panel basically descended into anecdotes about, you know, kind of one-upmanship about who had been slapped by who at what point. But, you know, Noakes said something that sounds rather unpleasant, that Johnson claims that Johnson slapped her as hard as she could, uh, hard as he could, and said, oh, you've got a nice seat, Romsey. And, you know, I've actually been on a date with Stanley Johnson. Oh, that yeah. was hosted by the BBC and no he didn't try and slap my ass but you know <laughs> uh, cameras around uh, allegations yeah. about the Johnson family abound and I think any sensible person would you know not take anything that Noakes says for direct fact as we know but it didn't exactly make me raise my eyebrows to hear about this but the most perverse thing about this whole discussion is that it happened in the context of, of a the, you know question about Sarah Everard mm. and the real scandal is that the entirety of the panel that um, Noakes was on including Jess Phillips and um, Rosine Alan Khan and another Tory MP um, all agreed at the end that after sharing their stories about historic uh, cases of alleged abuse that they wanted to bring in misogyny hate crime that the law needed to change that more needed to be done Rosine Allen Khan said women and our girls and our daughters and our friends are not safe on the streets how you jump from Stanley Johnson being yeah. allegedly a bit of a pervert to no woman being safe on the streets shows you how completely unhinged the discussion about women's safety has become and actually how dangerous it's become that we can, on the basis of one Tory MP who claims, while laughing, by the way, she laughed about this, that Johnson had done this, that could then institute a law that would change women's lives really so severely. That's the thing that I'm upset about, not Stanley Johnson and his past behaviour. I mean, there has been this quite common thread. I mean, we've talked about this a lot uh, in the wake of the Sarah Everard killing, where there's a kind of attempt to to say whatever thing has happened to me is like that or on a spectrum mm. with, you know, the kidnap and murder. What do we make of that? I mean, it's just absurd, isn't it? It's well, it's disgusting, actually, yeah. because there's, you know, there is the whole point with the issue of Wayne Cousins was it was quite complicated because Wayne Cousins was someone who should have been picked up many, many years previously because he had a history of indecent exposure. He was more than a jerk. He was a danger to women for many years previously. And he got let away. He either got let go with it with the police or nobody picked up on it. So there is a case of someone who goes from flashing to murder. But that is not the case with all men. And that's certainly not the case that, you know, just because certain columnists, you know, from The Guardian or even The Times or elsewhere are essentially parading their stories of when someone said something to me or when, you know, or even serious things like when someone stalked me, as if it's on a par with rape and murder. It completely blurs the seat. I've made this point till I'm blue in the face, but it, no one seems to have picked it up. Isn't blurring and uh, I think doing down the seriousness of the cases of things that happened to like Nicole Smallman, Bieber Henry, Sabina Nessa and Sarah Everard, which is murder, rape and murder is different from your average Me Too claim of sexual harassment. Now we can talk about changing women's safety, we can talk about changing men's uh, crappy behaviour, but to just throw everything into the mix like women are constantly under threat doesn't, crucially does nothing for women's freedom. In fact, it makes us feel like we're more afraid when, which is really the modus operandi of these jerks anyway. It's to keep us in a constant state of fear. Why the hell would we want to do that to ourselves? Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.